You're listening to the Calvary Presbyterian Church Podcast. There are lots of different ways for the church and its preachers to connect with this healing story we find in the Gospel of Mark. It's one of the first such stories recorded in the Gospels. I find it to be a text of questions. Questions, of course, asked of Jesus by the leper, but also, I imagine, necessitating Jesus to ask questions of himself, difficult questions. And I find in these days that the church is no stranger to the work of self-interrogation. We're facing a racial reckoning long overdue in our nation. Justice too long deferred in our communities and in our policing and in our ongoing choices to plead ignorance of the continuing and worsening costs of structural racism on the soul of our nation and our own souls. Civil protections here from reproductive rights to affirmative action are being belittled and diminished as recipients of these servants are made other like once long ago that leper was other. And we find at least culturally that these demands, these requests, these choices make more and more demands on ourselves and on our civil society and on our churches, demands that sometimes we don't wish to embrace and that more and more our government seems unwilling to embrace. And these are hard days. We in fact cannot escape the fact that we live in a deeply polarized, divided world. And this is a time when these old paradigms of lepers, as we used to sort of call anybody who we considered other, and us, are more and more played out in communities that we otherize, in communities that we blame for the circumstances they are enduring, for example, those who are chronically unhoused, for people whose conditions or nature or core identity we don't understand and so we dismiss it as other, less than human, to be avoided. These polarizations, these places of resistance in our bodies and in our minds and in our hearts, they impede our ability to fulfill the gospel of love. And yet it's also true that heeding and embracing the gospel of love puts us and the church that we love at risk of protest, of rejection, of loss of status and loss of belonging and loss of resources. As an example, let me share a letter that I received some time ago from a gentleman who, who was a longtime, lifelong Presbyterian. He shared with me in the letter, uh, written to me as the director of Presbyterian Disaster Assistance at the National Church, that for many, many, many years, he had long supported both financially and through volunteer work, 
the work of our church in responding to disaster. He shared that he had been a devoted volunteer going to New Orleans year after year after year to help the poorest of the poor recover from the hurricane that devastated them and ruined the city. He seemed in every way one of us, akin. And here is what he wrote. Dr. Krauss, I do not support your activities on our southern border. The people crossing the border are illegal, all caps. They are not coming to the USA to seek asylum. They are coming for one reason or two, economic or for drugs. None of them are fleeing from violence. It is a personal choice of the families in Central or South America to separate, to take their children on long, dangerous journeys, or to give them to the coyotes that are prevalent in these places. The parents knowingly put their children at risk, he went on. What do you not understand about the term illegal? This has nothing to do with any biblical mandate. These are not strangers asking for neighborly love. For you to ask Presbyterians to support these activities in aiding and abetting illegals is wrong. His letter, his letter still haunts me. And whenever I, I share it with congregations, I still have an indignant, a deep, gut-wrenching response to it. Not just because he disagrees with our denomination's stance and embrace of people seeking asylum and a new life in our country coming over our borders, but also because it forces on me, it forces on all of us a very difficult question. Who is us? Who are the Presbyterians? And, and who are them? Put in the framework of this little story, we might ask it a different way. We might say, who is the leper? And who is the Christ? Of course, in the Bible and in the beginning of Mark's gospel, it's very clear Jesus is the Christ. When the disciples find him praying alone and in the dark, and they tell him that everyone, actually a, a harder translation is, everyone is hunting for you. Jesus is absolutely clear in communicating as the Christ what it is he has shown up to do. Let us go to the neighboring towns and villages, he says. Let us preach the good news, for that is what I have come to do. How is he to know? How are his disciples to predict that fulfilling that simple and very, very clear mission statement would become so complicated, so troublesome, so very quickly? How could they have understood that to stop and to answer one simple question from one man would change everything for them forever. And yet it did. If you choose 
the man said. You can make me clean. Now the man making this strangely worded and beautifully dignified request of Jesus is a leper. And in the Bible, it doesn't get much worse than being a leper. To speak of it is to speak not just of physical illness, but also of social exclusion, of marginalization, of fear, of being in all ways possible, an utter rejected outsider. Lepers were others, forced to live on the margins, not allowed to be a part of their own families, forced into a position of begging. In many ways, they were that society's throwaways, people for whom the regrettable but necessary practice of putting them to the side and denouncing them as not worthy was the only way that society as a whole could see its way clear to come and do what they had come out to do. It's an argument we still and more and more frequently are hearing in civil society about what we have to let go of and who we have to ignore in order to fulfill the promise of America made long ago. If you choose, he said, you can make me clean. I want us to pause for a moment and think about how strange this request is from a man who had been socialized to see himself as unworthy and outside, a man forced to beg for his living. How with no apparent sense of irony, he does not beg Jesus, but rather greets him as an equal. Somehow, despite everything that society had made him think about himself, convinced in his own body, convinced in his own soul, that he was a human being worthy of dignity, worthy to be heard, worthy of receiving and giving love. And so he treats Jesus like an equal. Heal me or don't. It's your choice. Well, choices have consequences for us and for others. And sometimes such decisions are easy. And other times they feel like an overwhelming and gut-wrenching responsibility. In the original Greek, we can better understand this complicated set of feelings that this morning's translation rendered as indignant, that other translations variously refer to as pitying, compassionate feeling. But it's not just anger, and it's not pity, and it's not compassion or indignation. Rather, this word, which isn't used that often in the Bible, is, could be translated as sort of a, a compulsion so deeply upsetting that you feel it in the pit of your stomach. And you cannot go on until you wrestle with it and deal with it. So here is the first of the questions for Jesus and I think for us. What moves you? 
What breaks your heart? What causes you and this church to stop dead in its tracks, so deeply overcome with gut-wrenching emotion? That you stop in the midst of all the really good missional work you ordinarily do and say, wait, we have to do something else now. We have to change. We have to move to different plans. Now I have admired and respected the ministry of this congregation since I was a very young minister myself. I met one of your former pastors, Laird Stewart, when he and I served together on a committee at General Assembly that tried very, very hard to overset G60106B, that horrible rule that bound our church in sin for so long, excluding the full participation of LGBTQIA folk. It was a beautiful moment to be working with your former pastor and pastoring a small church myself in Miami, Florida, to know that this church, this great church in the middle of the heart of this city was sheltering that new organization of Covenant Network of Presbyterians as we tried to achieve justice in the church made me feel that being isolated way far away in Miami, I was still a part of something greater. And so I followed this church's life and witness and ministry and your very intelligent hiring of my close friend, Marcy Glass, with great joy. At each new moment of engagement, at each new sea change of our society, the church has to keep choosing. And to do that, we have to ask ourselves serious questions. And more than asking ourselves, we have to listen to hard questions from people who don't feel welcome among us, from people whose lives and whose structural exclusion from our society and our culture and our resources need to be heard. And we need to listen deeply in ways we have never listened before. Choosing changes us. It changes what we do, it changes how we do it, and it changes who we are. The Reverend Dr. Mitri Raheb, a Palestinian Christian leader and the founder of Dar al-Kalama University, which is in Bethlehem, spoke to 350 Presbyterians a couple weeks ago at a Matthew 25 summit that was held in Atlanta, of which I was a part. As the war in Gaza rages on, our church is deeply engaged in supporting humanitarian response there, working with partners we have walked alongside for many generations, both in Israel and in Palestine, trying to get resources that the church has put in the hands of Presbyterian disaster assistance into the hands of those who can help the more than millions who have had to flee Gaza City to help provide food and shelter, spiritual and emotional care, and to help people sustain their living and livelihood until the season of war is passed and hopefully a just peace between these two peoples that we love and honor can be achieved. Dr. Raheb was invited to speak to us about what he had been seeing, what he had been experiencing, 
and what he thought the American church needed to know about the war between Gaza, in Gaza, between Hamas and Israel. He talked about an experience that he had late in November when a large Orthodox church had been bombed in Gaza. It was a church that was sheltering not just an ongoing community of nuns, but also it was supporting and sheltering the um, Middle East Council of Churches offices that supported Palestinian refugees because their office had been bombed a couple weeks earlier. So all of them were working and living outside of this large church. I was really interested in this story he began to tell because we had already sent support both to that church and to um, the DSPR, part of the, the Middle East Council of Churches who work with the refugees. He said this, that when the bombing came, he was terrified because one of his best friends works there. And so he picked up his phone to call him to see whether he was alive. And the phone rang for an unbearably long time, Dr. Raheb said. And then someone picked it up and said hello. And he asked his question of whether his friend still lived and, and could he speak to him? Yes, he, he is alive. And Yes, I'll bring him to the phone. So his friend came to the phone and, and began to try to share with Mitri what it was he was seeing, what it was that had happened, who had been lost, what they were going to do next. And then, Mitri said, his friend became overwhelmed with, with anger and with horror and with sorrow, and he said, I, I can't speak anymore. And he handed the phone to someone else, one of the nuns who lived and worked out of that church. So Mitri said to us, so knowing that she was a nun, I said to her, sister, I said, sister, God bless you in this terrible moment. I am praying for you. And then he looked at us and he said, and she said, a sister, she said, stop praying, get out into the street. And the conversation concluded. It is for each of us, whether a leper or a nun is the one who stops us in our tracks, to decide whether we are going to walk away and remain uninvolved, or whether we are going to let ourselves be challenged and changed. This text and if we are listening deeply to it, the texts of human experience, the texts of the city of San Francisco, the texts of Calvary Presbyterian Church, they evoke hard and hard to stomach stories, difficult and difficult to enact decisions, stories that privilege some and exclude others, Stories that wonder at what salvation really means in this day and age and struggle with the cost of that salvation. Conversations and opportunities that break our hearts and at the same time break us open, driving us to new ways of understanding what church is and who we are as children of God and followers of Jesus of Nazareth. 
I think there's one more struggle in this story, one I, for many, many years, paid no attention to, but one more struggle that many of us in this room go through as we try to practice the Jesus way and discern right action when a stranger stops us and asks us to listen and invites us to choose. It is for me, and maybe for some of you, the struggle of privilege, of wanting to help, of wanting to be of service, but wanting at the same time and hoping deeply that our service, our response, won't require us to change how we are and who we are, fundamentally. Hoping that everything in our lives and in our structures and in our financial resources and in the way we do church can stay the same even as we try to help others. I never understood the end of this story why after this beautiful moment of healing and connection, Jesus says, hey, wait, stop, and then proceeds to read a list of laws, kind of like the Book of Order, and tells him what he has to do and when he has to do it, and that if he doesn't do it, he's gonna sick the elders on him. Jesus was mindful of Jewish law, and as a rabbi who was at that time within the confines of Jewish law, he understood that to heal a leper without requiring the leper to go through the proper steps of recognition of cleansing was not only to put this man at risk, but was to put him at risk. His location as a respected teacher of the law, his freedom to move in and out of cities since to touch a leper was to become a leper. And so for Jesus to say to this man, go and show yourself to the priest and make the offering that's required is not so much about completing a healing as it is about making sure that Jesus doesn't have to change even though he has stopped and chosen to heal. It would be fair to say that Jesus needs this man to do those things far more than the man who, as the story tells us, goes out and tells everybody and does not go through what the law prescribes. So the story ends. And so Jesus could no longer go into a town openly, but had to stay out in the country. Because by aligning with the leper, by allowing the leper his free choice, Jesus too became ritually unclean. Jesus lost his place of privilege. And the former leper, I think in a way, he became the Christ of this story. A person who knew good news and who went out to do what he came to do, proclaiming it freely and living in his body and in his relationships and in his culture, the freedom and the wholeness that he knew he had been delivered of, that he knew was his as a child of God. Jesus became the leper. The man became the Christ. Could it be that in these seasons of choosing, we are all called to be a little of both, leper and Lord?
Let us pray. It's in every one of us to be wise. Warm your hearts, open up both your eyes. We can It's in every one of us by and by. It's in every one of us by and by. Amen. Amen. Join us for worship every Sunday at Calvary Presbyterian Church on Fillmore Street in San Francisco, or watch our live stream at calpres.org worship.